Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown and across the table, Matthew Stockton sits there. In the sunshine. Uh, wearing your gray... Uh, tracky. Tracky outfit. Yes, I felt like I belonged in Walmart this morning. You did, did you? <laughs> what were you doing in Walmart on a Sunday? I was buying cases and cases of carbonated beverages for some research that I'm doing. Oh, I usually buy cases and cases of carbonated beverages to drink. <laughs> The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. John Ruffalo, 36, an employee of Brinks Canada at the Butler Crescent location in Saanichton, British Columbia, was due to start a night shift at 10.30 p.m. on October 19, 2003. He was an ATM technician and an armored car driver. When John didn't show up, the rest of his armored car crew waited 30 minutes before calling John's home. A woman answered the phone, telling John's co-worker, Jason Amos, that John had left for work some time ago. The crew waited for a few more minutes before calling in a replacement. John's wife, Ruby Ann Ruffalo, reported her husband missing on October 20th. His car turned up outside a local pub in Victoria two days later. 
and on October 25, 2003, a hiker walking near Humpback Road in Langford, 15 kilometers from John's Victoria home, found John Ruffalo's body in a culvert and called police. John's body was uninjured except for puncture marks believed to be needle marks on both arms. Six months after John Ruffalo died, police arrested Ruby Ann Ruffalo and charged her with first-degree murder in her husband's death. John's surviving family had to wait seven long years for justice in a case beset by numerous delays, some initiated by the defendant and her lawyers, but also including a judge's death and a mistrial. This is Dark Poutine, episode 246, The Murder of John Ruffalo. John Frank Salvatore Ruffalo was born to Lois and Mario Ruffalo in Victoria, British Columbia on August 8, 1967. John spent his entire life in Victoria. He went to Marigold Elementary and Colquitt's Secondary. He graduated from Spectrum High School in 1985. Always active, after high school, John took the recreation leadership program at Camison College. He loved playing and watching hockey and baseball. He also loved to swim trained as a lifeguard and performed lifeguarding duties at several local pools. John went to work at Glendale Lodge, a home for adults with severe disabilities, which opened in 1976. It was one of three major institutions for people with mental disabilities in British Columbia. John worked there until the institution was closed in 1996. In 1990, John met divorcee Ruby Ann Burton. Ruby Ann was nine years older than John, but the age difference didn't seem to matter to them. They fell in love quickly. They married and had a daughter, Giovanna, the same year they were wed. Ruby Ann did have four other children with her ex-husband. Her son, Ricky, and three daughters were left in the care of her mother and did not live with her, John, and Giovanna. Ricky would move in with them later. After Glendale Lodge closed, John retrained in security and went to work in corrections in 1991. He worked as a guard at Vancouver Island Regional Correctional Center on Wilkinson Road for eight years. Giovanna started school and Ruby Ann decided she wanted to go to school too. She took law at the University of Victoria and graduated with high marks. The couple began investing in real estate, buying several rental properties around Victoria. Although Ruby Ann later claimed the money used to purchase the properties was mostly hers, the properties were all in John Ruffalo's name. The reason for this was that Ruby Ann was diagnosed with cancer now in remission, some years ago, and with the properties in John's name, the couple figured they'd be able to avoid estate taxes if Ruby Ann died. Uh, death and taxes. Yeah, the two things that are most unavoidable in life. Unavoidable. Yes. Yeah. Ah, well. These investments in John's dealings in real estate rentals caused things to begin unraveling. In 1999, John Ruffalo got into hot water. John was running a business, VI Renter Center, in which he would match landlords with potential tenants for a fee of $250 per successful application. However, John had not obtained the proper licensing to be involved in these dealings. He was charged with 22 infractions of the Provincial Real Estate Act. He was convicted and was suspended from his job in corrections in February 2000, and he was then fired in May 2000. From an article by Jody Patterson in the Victoria Times Colonist. The court fined him $19,000, reduced on appeal to $14,000, roughly the profit Ruffalo's company had made on those deals. Acting on John's behalf as his legal counsel, Ruby Ann Ruffalo persuaded the union to go to arbitration over his firing. 
they received a consent award of $17,000 in September 2001, and John Ruffalo was allowed to resign, thus removing the firing from his work record there. You know, sometimes I feel like all this licensing stuff is really about government control and associations making money. Yeah. Like, like you know, the, the guy probably didn't even know he needed one of these things. Well, I mean, th that kind of happened to me in a, in a couple of instances. I didn't know that I needed to pay tax on a particular thing. It's a long story. And I got this giant fine. Wow. Because I didn't understand that I had to pay taxes on this particular thing. Yeah, I mean, tax is one thing, but just the licensing stuff is yeah. like, come on, guys. Like, the guy was just being entrepreneurial, introducing people to landlords to make 250 bucks here and there. Yeah. And he ends up, like, getting sued and or going well, to going, sorry, going to court and then losing his job. Yeah, it was terrible. The legal woes put a strain on an already troubled marriage. According to court documents, Rubianne claimed she, quote, left John at one point when he was taking a combination of marijuana, acid, and heroin, which he smoked. She said he worked through his issues, proved to her he was drug-free, and they reconciled, end quote. Rubianne later said they'd come close to divorce during the real estate debacle. Wanting some security, Ruby had an agreement drawn up that was dated December 17, 2000 which said that in the event of a divorce or separation initiated by John Ruffalo, Ruby Ann would be paid $100,000 up front for everything she had done. Everything else would be divided in half. In 2001, the couple and their daughter, Giovanna, moved into an apartment in one of their recently purchased properties, a small run-down apartment building at 826 Esquimalt Road. Ruby Ann's son, Ricky Burton, joined the Ruffalos there. Through their marital troubles, John had not been faithful to Ruby Ann. He'd had at least two affairs. One of the women John Ruffalo was involved with was Jamie Hewson, a single mom that John had met. Jamie and John had been having an affair since 2001, often chatting online. On the afternoon of March 29, 2002, Jamie received a single chat message from John. Jamie wasn't home at the time when John sent the note, but was taken aback when she saw it and read it later that evening. It read, Hi Jamie, I'm sorry I'm bothering you, but I just learned something, and I'm scared to death, literally. Are you there? It's nothing to do with us. Okay, okay, I'm writing this to have it on record that if something happens to me, this will be archived and that it's on record. I had an adult female tenant of mine named Linda come to me and tell me that Ruby had taken her son for a car ride three weeks ago, I'm assuming about the same time I told her I was leaving. She then told me Ruby asked her son to kill me in return for $20,000. To prove this, she took him to a bank to prove the money was in the bank. The son told her that he wouldn't do it and that she should get someone else, and apparently that's happening. My gut feeling is that Linda is telling me the truth because she was able to give me details of our relationship that no one knows about. For over two weeks now, Ruby has been claiming that she has spoken to someone that says I was planning to kill her and offered $10,000 to do it, which I now believe is just a deflection as to what's really in the works. The tenant Linda says she believes her son has been asked to do it, and today Ruby says that she is calling back her brother from Edmonton because she needs him, for whatever reason. Put this on your archives and don't erase it. I'm taking it seriously. I'm probably getting the cops to deal with it. Bye. End quote. When Jamie got home, she joined the conversation and prompted John to tell her more about what had gone on. 
Ruby Ann's son, Ricky, and Jonathan J.P. Horton, the son of the woman making the allegations against Ruby Ann, did not get along. The sour feelings between the two young men boiled over on the night of March 28, 2002. This is the day before John sent the message to Jamie. Police were called to the property after Ricky Burton and Jonathan Horton were involved in an altercation that, according to John's chat with Jamie, was a, quote, knife fight. Jamie Houston asked for clarification. What? Ruby's son and the neighbor's son got in a knife fight? John Ruffalo responded, with swords. Big cop scene. Jamie asked John if Ruby would ask these neighbors to kill him. John responded, these are tenants she knows would do it. Criminal element type people, end quote. According to court documents, Jonathan Horton does have an extensive criminal record. Ruby Ann was now demanding the Hortons be thrown out of the building. This is what had brought Linda to speak to John Ruffalo about the allegations that weeks before the fight, Ruby Ann had asked Linda's son Jonathan to kill John Ruffalo. John told Jamie that he was struggling to believe this was real, but he said that Linda had some, quote, convincing details. John Ruffalo said he'd write down as much detail as possible before talking to the police. Ruffalo ended the chat reassuring Jamie Hewson, writing, quote, Jamie, it's okay. I just wanted someone to know in case something happens, end quote. Jamie Hewson printed out the message and saved it. John and Jamie broke up soon after. Now, John didn't contact police about the claims of the murder plot against him, even though Linda had agreed to make a statement to the cops about it. It isn't clear why he didn't follow through. Perhaps he had second thoughts about the source of the information, Linda Horton, an admitted heroin user. This communication would not come to light publicly until seven years after John had written it, and he was dead for more than five years. If your partner's asking people to kill you, yeah. You know, I think you should probably go to the authorities no matter what. Right. Even if you're thinking, maybe this person is not telling me the truth if or whatever. If something has devolved that far, yeah. like if, yeah, because if the person's not telling the truth, then get them into trouble for like causing that ruckus, right? Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, we, I've, you've seen this as well. So many people giving notes to friends of something should happen to me, right? Yeah. Just go to the cops. Just go to the cops. Yeah. After the fight between Jonathan Horton and Ricky Burton, John Ruffalo felt he had no choice but to evict the Hortons. Linda later said John gave them a rental reference before they moved out. The Ruffalos then moved to another home they owned at 994 Tulip Avenue in Saanich. In September 2002, a family tragedy occurred when Ruby Ann's son Ricky died by suicide after hanging himself in his shed in the backyard of that property. Police who arrived on the scene to help investigate the young man's death said Ruby Ann was understandably distraught by Ricky's suicide, so much so that she required medical help. She was angry, too. According to court documents, quote, two police witnesses said that on the evening of the suicide, Ms. Ruffalo screamed at John Ruffalo that he was to blame. She was going to leave him. The marriage was over. He had always been too military with her son and had not let him come upstairs. Ricky's room was in the basement. Giovanna Ruffalo, Ruby Ann and John's daughter, later said that her mother had no friends and became withdrawn after Ricky Burton's suicide, but she never heard her blame John Ruffalo for it. To Giovanna's recollection, everything was fine at home, even in the months leading up to her father's death. Vivian Kirkland, Douglas Murray, and Vaughn Barnes had become downstairs tenants at 994 Tulip Avenue. John was happy to be closer to his family. 
His parents lived on the same street, so did his sister Mina and her husband, Norm Westaver. John began seeing his family more regularly. The relationship between John's parents and Ruby Ann had been rocky. John's mom, Lois, said Ruby Ann Ruffalo had cut herself off from the family years before. Lois said the family saw John Ruffalo often for the first year and a half of his marriage to Ruby Ann. However, Ruby Ann called Lois at Christmas in 1991 to say they should not see each other for two years. Ruby Ann felt John's family was not good for him. In 1994, John Ruffalo called to say he was coming over and they saw him more frequently after that. And they saw him more frequently after that. That's a pattern of victims with abusers cutting them off from their families. Sure. This was around the time that he had been using drugs on mm. and off and he and Ruby Ann had broken up for a time and Ruby Ann indicated that it was his family who was influencing him poorly here. But regardless, like, it's not for her to say what he does or who he contacts. Especially now that we know what happened. Yeah. When Ruby Ann was diagnosed with cancer, her feelings toward John's family slightly warmed up. She called, telling Lois that she was sick, and in the case of her death, Ruby Ann wanted the senior Ruffalos to become guardians of Giovanna. Ruby Ann was concerned that John would struggle to raise the girl alone. All this was done over the phone. On Thanksgiving 2003, John and Giovanna were invited to a late dinner at Lois and Mario's home. Ruby Ann called on Thanksgiving Day and said that Giovanna had homework and could not attend. Ruby Ann then called back at about 9 p.m. to say John Ruffalo was upset Giovanna had not gone over to see her grandparents and that she would drop her off. Ten minutes later, Ruby Ann was at the door, 12-year-old Giovanna in tow. The Ruffalos were shocked to see their daughter-in-law, who, the, who hadn't darkened their door since 1991. Even though Victoria is a small city and John and Ruby Ann live so close, Lois hadn't seen Ruby Ann all those years except for one chance encounter at a local swimming pool. Ruby Ann didn't stay that evening and left almost immediately. Giovanna ate and fell asleep on the couch. John Ruffalo arrived at about 10.40 p.m. after his shift was finished at the group home. He told his mother that he'd met someone named Dilek Sensoy at Brinks and that he was in love and planning to divorce Ruby Ann. He said that he had told Ruby Ann about his plans, including getting a job and working in Vancouver in customs with the Canadian Border Services Agency. John said that Ruby Ann had written him a note to say they would discuss it in the first two weeks of November, which he said was not how they usually communicated. Ruby Ann, John said, had made it clear that if he left, he would never see Giovanna again and she would take him for every penny he had. Lois Ruffalo told her son she would support him in whatever he decided to do. John asked Lois not to tell his father that he was leaving Ruby Ann. He wanted to do that himself. Lois was probably thinking, yes, get away from this woman. Yeah, because, right? you know, she had been such a thorn uh, yeah. in the family side for so long. Yeah. Yeah, keeping John away from them, all that kind of thing. The Ruffalo clan had a family picnic on Thanksgiving Monday at a nearby park. John Ruffalo came with Giovanna, and although Ruby was always welcome, she did not attend. On October 17, 2003, two days before John's death, Lois and Mario visited their daughter Serena, who was hospitalized due to complications from her recent tonsillectomy. John dropped by the hospital for a quick visit, bringing Delec Sensoy along to introduce her to his folks. This was the last time Lois and Mario Ruffalo saw their son. Delec Sensoy saw John on the morning of October 19, 2003, 
the day that he would die. John's shift at Land's End Group Home ended at 8.30 a.m. Delek said that John came to her place after his shift, stayed a half hour, and then left for home. She never saw him again. More after a quick break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts on this case to this point? I don't even know why these two are together at all. Yeah. I mean, it was such a devolved relationship. Mm -hmm. Just get out of it. Yeah. Like, split the money and go. Ruby Ann Ruffalo called the Brinks office between 9.30 and 10 a.m. on October 20th, 2003. She asked whether John was working overtime as he hadn't yet arrived home. Ruby Ann was told that John had not come to work and that Ruby Ann should call John's other jobs at the group homes and try his pager. Ruby Ann said the pager idea was no good as John had left it at home. That day, Ruby Ann made phone calls to John's other places of work and the local hospital claiming to be looking for John. She made remarks about the previous night's lousy weather and John's late travel. She posited that perhaps John had been in an accident. The drive from the Ruffalo's home to work at Brinks was around 15 minutes door-to-door. Hearing John had missed his shift, Dilek had called his pager and other workplaces. No one had seen him. Dilek went to see John's sister, Serena, and called Lois to let her know that John had missed his shift. Out of concern, Dilek, Dilek also made an anonymous 911 call to express concerns over John's well-being. Around midday on October 20th, 2003, a person who identified herself as Ann Ruffalo called the Victoria Police Department. She let the operator know that her husband had not shown up for work at Brinks the night before and no one had heard from him and it was out of character for him not to call. She said he had been using marijuana since his sister came back into his life and in the same call, Ruby Ann said that she also heard he was using heroin. She said he had been depressed and was having problems with his family. She said he did not like his mother, Lois. She couldn't help herself, could she? No. I mean, she's making an alibi for herself Mm -hmm. and needs to do a little bit of a jab to her mother-in-law in the the middle of it. Yeah, like, let's sling mud at mother-in-law. Just a horrible person. She really is. Yeah, she doesn't sound very nice. No. Constable Nancy Melville of the Saanich Police Department said that Ruby Ruffalo came to the front desk in the early afternoon of October 20th, 2003. She was with another woman, her downstairs neighbor and friend, Vivian Kirkland. Constable Melville said that Vivian did most of the talking. A description of John Ruffalo was given to local patrol officers who would keep an eye out for the missing man. 
On October 22, 2003, John Ruffalo's brother-in-law, Norm Westhaver, stopped at a gas station on Interurban Road between 12 and 1 p.m. Norm noticed what he thought could be John Ruffalo's car, a late 1990s red Ford Tempo, at the knocking back grill across the street. He went over to investigate. He called his wife to check the license plate, and sure enough, it was John's car. Norm looked into the pub to see if John was inside, but he wasn't. Okay, two things. Okay. Number one, mm -hmm. do you think they could maybe be a little bit more creative than naming a road interurban road? Right. <laughs> oh, well, it's a road that goes between two places, so we'll call it interurban road. Yeah, well, they were creative with the name of the grill, knocking back, cause, so you're knocking back some <laughs> knocking drinks. Knocking back grill. I think they should name a road after Dark Poutine. Oh, gosh. Dark, well, Dark Poutine Street. Yeah, maybe. I doubt that will ever happen. Um, but what was the second thing? Why would this guy's wife know what Ruffalo's license plate number was? Well, she probably had the information written down that they had given to police about him because everybody was searching for him. Uh, I thought she had like a photographic memory or something. I don't, I don't know. I don't think it's anything, you know, so, okay. you know, fantastical. Okay. You know, I was literally like going, does she have a photographic memory? Oh, God. Memorizes license plates? Norm called the police, who arrived at around 2 p.m. No one touched the car, and police had it towed to a secure place for investigation. Inside was John Ruffalo's Brinks uniform, his gun belt containing a revolver cylinder with six bullets, and his wallet. There was no sign of John anywhere nearby. One of the investigating officers noticed something odd. The driver's seat was positioned too far forward toward the steering wheel for the officer to sit inside the car. As the officer was almost the same height as John Ruffalo, it was likely someone much shorter than John had driven the car to where Norm Westaver discovered it. For those of us who have watched one million true crime shows, yeah. we're all thinking, such a beginner mistake. Yeah, what a rookie mistake to not... <laughs> it's like, it's like the, the car seat was pulled forward, small, to, like a smaller person, maybe a woman. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Like how many times have... This, this, people who are going to commit crimes should actually do a little bit of research listening to this podcast. No, please. Or watching some shows like whatever. You know how mortified I would be if a criminal had listened to this podcast and got an idea of how to get away with something? And we get some publicity. Yeah, but that's not, that's not <laughs> publicity that I okay, want. Okay, everyone, don't commit crimes. Don't, yeah, how about just don't hurt people? Even crimes against love. Ugh. With these latest discoveries, the cops leaned strongly toward foul play in John Ruffalo's disappearance. Police discovered that John was a good, reliable worker and was highly thought of. He never missed shifts and always showed up when they needed someone. They also learned that the Ruffalo couple's marriage was on the rocks before John's disappearance. When Ruby Ann attended the police station to answer a few questions, she brought Vivian Kirkland and her lawyer, Chris Brennan. Ruby Ann was initially standoffish with officers and refused to speak other than through Brennan at first. When she finally did talk, her story didn't match with what police had already heard from others. Ruby Ann told Sergeant McKenzie that there was no talk of divorce between her and John. She said John had been off drugs for seven years, and he'd previously taken marijuana, LSD, and experimented with heroin. His sister Serena had recently re-entered his life, and Ruby Ann claimed that John would do drugs with Serena. 
Sergeant McKenzie asked if it was safe to say John Ruffalo had a drug problem. Ruby Ann said he was a good person, not a bad person. He was a drug addict, although she didn't see him as a drug addict. She said he was trying to get off drugs and had a hard time. She said he told her he would do it himself. He had done it before. He could do it again. She trusted him. She said, quote, he was trying so hard, but his sister was so much into this. Three days after the discovery of John's car, the Times Colonist newspaper published a description of John Ruffalo alongside a photo of him that Rubian had provided to police. The article read, quote, Ruffalo, described as 5 feet 11 inches tall and weighing 208 pounds, was last seen at 5 p.m. on Sunday, October 19th. He failed to show up at work that evening and was reported missing by his wife at 4 p.m. Monday. His car was recovered Wednesday at the Knockenbach Grill at the junction of Wilkinson and Interurban Roads. Ruffalo has strong family and business ties in the community and no previous history of going missing. Anyone with information can contact Saanich Police or Crime Stoppers. End quote. On October 25, 2003, John Ruffalo's body was found by a hiker in a culvert running under Humpback Road, a narrow twisting road in a heavily wooded area between Sook Road and the Trans-Canada Highway. Humpback Road is 15 to 17 kilometers from Tulip Avenue, depending on the route one drives. From court documents, the body was wedged into the culvert under pieces of wooden rocks, with the head close to the smaller opening but covered by debris, including a large log. The body and legs were pointed back into the culvert under the road. No serious issue was taken with the impossibility of a body being placed in the location where it was found. The only possible inference is that it was placed at or into the large hole on either side of the road and was washed through the culvert in the heavy rains of that week. Constable LeBlanc, one of the attending officers, later testified the rains were torrential. The hiker who'd found the body also said the rains were heavy in the preceding days and the ditches in that area fill with water during those heavy rains. He said there was water in the ditch that day, although the level had dropped from the debris line. The rainfall in October 2003 set a new monthly record in Victoria for monthly rainfall since 1961 when recording of that began. Instead of washing away evidence like rain usually does, yeah. it actually helped find his body this time. Yeah, exactly. A stroke of luck thanks to Mother Nature. Yeah, it's like uh, Mother Nature said, no, 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 no. We're going to catch this woman. Yeah. Due to the corpse's state of decomposition, it was determined that John had died on the night he vanished. During the notification of John's death, Rubian again brought up John Ruffalo's alleged return to drugs possibly heroin, and his being led there by his sister. Vivian Kirkland, also present, confirmed having seen a heroin pipe on the table of the Ruffalo home. So this is how much I know about heroin? Mm-hmm. I thought you could only inject it. No. Oh. Yeah, you can smoke it as oh. well. Okay, I did not know that. Yep. Probably not good to do either. No, I wouldn't think so. It's only going to lead uh, to bad things for you, I would think. News of the discovery of John Ruffalo's body hit the local media outlets. Three days after, a witness named Robert Johnson came forward to the police with a story to tell. Johnson told police that he believed Ruffalo's wife and her friend Vivian had killed John with an overdose of heroin. Johnson was a down-on-his-luck chronic alcoholic who sometimes painted houses for John Ruffalo. Robert Johnson said two to three weeks before John Ruffalo's death, 
Vivian Kirkland and Anne Ruffalo picked him up in Anne's blue-green car and took him to a park at Crystal Pool. He was told he would be doing some work and was encouraged to go to the meeting because Vivian Kirkland had bought him an $8 bottle of sherry of the kind he preferred. They sat in the bleachers by the soccer field to talk. As soon as he sat down on the bleachers, he was asked if he would kill John Ruffalo and how he would go about doing it. He said that Ruby Ann Ruffalo said John was abusing her. Robert said both women talked to him and were involved in the discussion, but Ruby Ann was the person who asked him to kill John Ruffalo. He said their demeanors were businesslike, but he never assumed they were serious and would go through with it. Robert said he told them there was no way he would do it, but he mentioned a method, a heroin overdose or hot capping. He had seen it used on Oz, a prison show, on TV the night before. He said hot capping is done by injecting someone with a large quantity of heroin, making the death look like an accidental overdose. He said he told the women, you could inject someone anywhere with a large quantity and it would take effect quickly, and then the person would die. Robert gave them a guesstimate that $150 worth of heroin should do it. He said he had personally overdosed a few years before on $10 worth of heroin, so with $150 worth, the person would surely die. Robert said the women asked him if he could find the heroin for them, and he told them that he could not because he didn't use the drug anymore. Robert later told his friend about the conversation, but he didn't go to police because he thought it was just a bad joke. This is the second person mm -hmm. who was asked to kill the man. Yeah. Nobody has gone to the police. Nope. Okay, Mike, just so you know, if you ever asked me to kill somebody, mm -hmm. despite our friendship, yeah. the cops would be at your door faster than you could say Sarah Jessica Parker. Sarah Jessica Parker? <laughs> you know, I just made oh. that up. <laughs> Whenever I hear the words Sarah Jessica Parker, I just think of Peter Griffin from Family Guy talking about her. And uh, I don't know the context of it, but I just remember the line. Now, Sarah Jessica Parker's still on TV, and she looks like a foot. <laughs> Hilarious. Yeah, oh well. Poor Sarah. But of course you're going to call the cops. Of if, course. If I'm saying, it, hey, it, Matthew, do you want to go kill like XYZ person? Nobody does that as a bad joke. No. Nobody, right? No. He also said in a statement that a few days later, Vivian showed up again saying she had $150 with her. Ruby Ann waited for Vivian outside in the car. Vivian was again asking if Robert could buy $150 worth of heroin for her. And Robert told Vivian again that he didn't know any people to buy heroin from, so he couldn't help her. As Vivian was on welfare, he assumed the money was Ann Ruffalo's for the killing that had been discussed earlier. On the night of October 19, 2003, Ruby Ann Ruffalo asked Robert Johnson to come over to her house to help with some, quote, heavy lifting. When he arrived, he found John Ruffalo covered with a sheet and lying dead in the driveway of the family home at 994 Tulip Avenue. Ruby Ann told Robert that her husband had died of a heroin overdose. Ruby Ann asked him to help get the body into a car, but Robert refused and left immediately. Again, he didn't go to the police. Yeah. Honest, shame on him. Well, shame on everybody who was involved in any way and knew about this and just kept their mouths shut. That's the second time he had the chance to like try yeah. to make this right. After Robert heard that John Ruffalo's body had been found, he felt compelled to come forward, fearful that Ruby Ann and Vivian might try to frame him for what he presumed was John's murder. 
So a total selfish motivation. Yeah, he's not coming forward because I know information. He's coming forward because he's afraid he's going to get framed. He had a chance to come forward to stop it. Mm -hmm. He had a chance to come forward to have the body immediately found. Yeah. And then he didn't come forward letting John's family not know where he is. Yeah. And only when he's like, oh, I might be framed, I'll come forward. Yeah. An autopsy performed on John's body showed no immediate cause of death. There were, according to court documents, four superficial blunt force abrasions to his head, all occurring before death. They were consistent with the head striking a blunt surface or vice versa, but none were relevant to the cause of death. Toxicology tests later proved John's cause of death was in fact due to an overdose of a mixture of drugs, including heroin and an antidepressant called amitriptyline. From court documents, quote, the toxicologist discovered amitriptyline in a toxic dose and heroin in a lethal dose in the body. The pathologist could not determine any cause of death and concluded that Mr. Ruffalo's death was consistent with acute mixed drug toxicity, heroin and amitriptyline, end quote. The investigation continued through the fall and winter of 2003 and into early 2004. A search warrant was executed on 994 Tulip Avenue on March 3, 2004. Prescription bottles of amitriptyline were found in Vivian Kirkland's room and Douglas Murray's, another tenant. Douglas Murray, Vivian Kirkland, and Ruby Ann Ruffalo were arrested on March 4, 2004 under suspicion of murdering John Ruffalo. Douglas Murray was determined not to be a suspect and was released the next day, but not before he told police a story that helped to sink Ruby Ann Ruffalo. On the evening of October 19, 2003, he was at home in the Ruffalo residence where he rented a room. He said Giovanna was not at home. In his recounting, Ruby Ann had told him that Giovanna was at a friend's. Douglas said that he was watching the movie Fatal Attraction on TV when Ruby Ann and Vivian came running into his room. He noticed Vivian seemed really drunk. Vivian told him that they needed his help and that it was life or death. She told him that John Ruffalo had overdosed on drugs and was laying in the driveway. Ruby Ann asked for help getting John into her vehicle. The two women had been unable to lift the 200 pounds of dead weight on their own. According to court documents, Douglas Murray went out to the driveway. It was dark. He went to the place where the women pointed. There was a body on its back. He recognized John Ruffalo's face and, upon grabbing his arm, felt that it was stiff. He ran into the house, intending to call the police. The two women followed Douglas into the house and persuaded him to assist them in putting John Ruffalo's body into the car. Though Douglas told them that they should take John to the hospital, Vivian insisted that they instead get rid of the body to deflect the blame that would otherwise fall on Ruby Ann. Douglas and Vivian tried to load the body into the back seat of the red car, but encountered difficulties due to its stiffness. Since they could not bend the legs, Douglas rolled down the driver's side window and put the legs through. Vivian closed the passenger side door with the body's head and shoulders leaning partially against it. In the light of the car, Douglas could see that John Ruffalo's face looked ashen and gray and that he was not breathing. Douglas claimed that he said, that's it, take him to the hospital. As he returned to the house, he saw Ruby Ann going toward the red car, the one belonging to John where they'd put the body, while Vivian walked to the teal car, another one that the family owned. 20 to 30 minutes later, Ruby Ann and Vivian returned. 
Douglas said at this point they were laughing and that they, quote, looked satisfied with the job well done. They told him they had put the body in a ditch. Vivian said that Mr. Ruffalo was, quote, mooning the world, meaning John was face down just like he was later found. Who are these people? Mm. So he didn't report anything either. No. Is there anyone involved with these people who have some sort of conscience? I, uh, that isn't clear. I mean, I'm sure there were people who, I don't know. I don't know. Because I haven't, because I haven't seen one yet. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if one existed. Upon learning that she could be charged as an accessory to John's murder, Vivian talked too. Vivian Kirkland had cleaned the Ruffalo's properties on Esquimalt Avenue that day and rewarded herself with a dozen beers while watching TV. She said she was very drunk when Ruby Ann came downstairs and told her she'd given John a protein drink, that she was going out, and Vivian should later check on him to make sure he was sleeping. Sometime later, Vivian staggered upstairs and found John Ruffalo lying on his bedroom floor dressed in jogging pants, a t-shirt, and socks. She did not check to see if he was breathing. Vivian said that she went back downstairs and continued her little private party. She said she stayed downstairs for a couple hours drinking, and then Ruby Ann Ruffalo came down and asked her to come upstairs. She went and saw John Ruffalo in the same position as she'd seen him in the bedroom that afternoon. Ruby Ann said that John had OD'd. Vivian said she told Ruby Ann to call an ambulance. But Ruby Ann said it would be too difficult for their daughter to know that her father had died during a drug overdose. She needed help to move his body. Vivian recalled Ruby Ann putting shoes on John Ruffalo's body in the hallway. They tried to get John's body into the car by pulling it on a blanket to the stairs and out the front. They got him to the driveway but could not lift him into the car, which she said was a red topaz. She said the rear of the car was level with the house and that there was a gap between the car and the stairs enough to allow the door to open. They put a blanket over John's body before Ann Ruffalo drove around looking for someone to help them move the heavy man. This is when she brought Robert Johnson to the house who later fled, wanting nothing to do with the situation. Finally, Vivian said they got help from Douglas Murray to put the body, now in full rigor mortis, into the back seat, his feet sticking out of the window. Vivian then described going with Ruby Ann in her car to a remote area outside Victoria and depositing John Ruffalo's body in a ditch. They then drove out of the area, changed clothes, threw out the ones they had been wearing, and drove back to the Ruffalo residence. Vivian then drove John's car to the Knockenback Grill, the neighborhood pub not far from the Ruffalo home where it was discovered. Ruby Ann followed her in her own car, and the two left after Vivian parked John's car. Witnesses who knew the pair said that Vivian and Ruby Ann were more than just acquaintances, they were inseparable best buddies. This claim Ruby Ann and her defense team have vigorously denied to distance Ruby Ann from Vivian. The Hortons also came forward with their story of murder for hire, as did Jamie Hewson with the printout she'd saved of John's chat where he predicted his own death. For her, for her part in things, Vivian Kirkland pleaded guilty in 2007 to offering an indignity to John Ruffalo's remains for her role in moving the body. She was sentenced to 19 days, time served, and two years of probation. Once the trial finally began, it looked like Ruby Ann Ruffalo's goose was well cooked. All the testimony against her by former friends was overwhelming. 
Rubian's defense team tried their damnedest to keep Rubian out of prison. Rubian testified in her own defense, claiming she'd left John sleeping peacefully at home on the morning of Sunday, October 19, 2003. She said she'd assume when she returned that night after a long day of looking after the rental properties that he had just gone to work. From a CBC News article, quote, The defense argued that there were no eyewitnesses to John's death and described the Crown prosecutor's evidence as almost ridiculous and suggested the motive nonsensical. Defense lawyers suggested that John may have gone into hiding because he owed money to drug dealers. They brought witnesses who said they had sold heroin to John and another pair who said they saw him at a local restaurant four days after he was supposedly murdered. But the judge rejected that theory, writing that there were, quote, many difficulties with it, particularly the idea that he would let himself be seen in a popular pub while he was running for his life, end quote. In her decision, Judge Humphreys wrote, quote, I am satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that the drugs were administered by someone other than John Ruffalo. The administration of a lethal dose of drugs is an unlawful act, end quote. Judge Humphreys did not believe that the witnesses for the Crown had colluded with each other against the accused woman, as her defense team had suggested. Judge Humphreys concluded, quote, After a consideration of all the evidence, I am satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that the only rational conclusion is that Mrs. Ruffalo either injected the heroin herself or if Vivian Kirkland participated, she did so with the assistance and encouragement of Mrs. Ruffalo. The only rational conclusion to draw from this evidence is that the killing of John Ruffalo by administering drugs to him was intentional, end quote. On November 18, 2010, Ruby Ann Ruffalo was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years. Ruby Ann appealed her conviction citing new evidence, which was rejected. Her conviction has since been upheld. Your, your note here is disgust so many people. I just, I'm blown away yeah. at how many people were involved in this. Yeah, me too. And nobody said anything. And this guy, you know, might have had his problems, but he did not, 100% did not deserve. Yeah, I'm not victim blaming here, but he, even he knew that she may be plotting against him or he had an inkling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel bad for him. Um you know, maybe he was frightened, and but who knows? But the poor guy, you know, there is no evidence of him doing anything wrong other than hurting himself in a lot of ways through, mm -hmm. through drug addiction. When somebody says, man, I, I wish that guy was dead or that kind of stuff, people don't want to believe that other people are actually going to follow through. Well, there and there's also something different than I wish that guy was dead. And hey, if I gave you $150... Would you kill him for me? Yeah. Those are very different things. Well, well, it wasn't an offer of a, it was a, for $150 worth of heroin. Oh, I see. There was no even offer of money at that point. Just, will you kill him? Yeah. About this case, I wonder why Vivian did what she did. I wonder what, if anything, Rubian had promised her to be involved in this. Who knows? She had to have some motive for doing what she did, for playing her part. And it wasn't just being a good buddy. You know, you know what yeah. I mean? It wasn't, nobody does, nobody would do something like that. Nobody. They, unless there was something to gain. All of these people deserve each other. <laughs> I guess so. Uh, except for John's except family. Except for John and his family. Yeah. And that is it for Dark Poutine episode 246. 
the murder of John Ruffalo. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or one 877 dark We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Okay, we've got two voicemails this week. Let's have a listen and see what people are saying. I'm curious. Are you? I am. Hi, Mike and Matthew. My name is Sam, and I'm calling from a tiny little town called Glenrock, Pennsylvania. Um, I've been listening to the show for a while, and I've got two episodes to get caught up. And this is my first time calling. So I wanted to just let you know that I really enjoyed your episode on the tale of La Corivo. Um, my family is related to her. We're connected to her. So I was really excited to see that on your list of episodes. And I got the whole family together, and we all listened to it at the same time. And it was really cool. So I wanted to thank you for how you told the story and how you went about doing that and all the different sides of it, because it has been changed over history, of course. And the mention of different companies that use it, totally true. Uh, when we visited Canada, there was a beer named after her. I found out there was a heavy metal band, so that was really cool. There was a ballet at one point, but I haven't been able to find any videos or anything about it, unfortunately. So if you can find it and share it on, on the website, that would be cool. But I wanted to share that. My my mom's maiden name is actually Corvo, and the whole side of the family is connected to her. My grandfather's from Petfort Mines in Quebec province. So it was really cool to, to hear you guys cover that. Um, the last thing I want to leave you with is not anything rude, but I also went to college in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and a, a while back, an episode from the spring, you and Matthew were talking about the town called Intercourse which is full of Amish people, absolutely, which makes it worse. But I'm going to add something even worse to it. There's a town near it called Paradise, and you have to get through intercourse to get to Paradise. So I will leave you with that. Um, thank you for everything you do and how you tell your stories, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Bye. Wow, that was really nice. I like that call. She's from Glenrock. The town of the famous Glenrock Carolers. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do they do like Christmas carols? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, I think it was usually only men, but I wonder if they've opened it up to women yet. I don't know. Sam, call us, let us know. I kind of like the, I know like I'm not a religious person or whatever, but I kind of like Christmas carols. They're fun. So do I. Yeah, it's warm. I, I was telling a friend the other day how we were watching a, a Christmas-related horror movie, but uh, they always feel so warm and cozy. Whenever you see Christmas lights, I just think of that warm and cozy feeling. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I, it's great that Sam got a whole family around and yeah, yeah all that, warm and cozy listening to the story of Well, murder. that kind of, that warmed the sort of little dark part of my little dead heart. It was very nice. <laughs> I'm so glad that... Uh, that your your family had a listening of that's great dark routine. <laughs> it was wow. 
this stuff just blows me away every time. Anyway, so thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your call. It was lovely. Uh, let's move on to our next one, which I believe might be uh, from Alberta. Hi, guys. It's Teresa calling once again from Alberta. Um, I just wanted to call and say thank you for your Remembrance Day episode. I truly believe that it is important for us as Canadians to remember all that happened and continues to happen. Um, I actually have a little just story um, similar to the I, I like to share stories, obviously, um, but my great uncle actually fought in World War II and he was at the Battle of Juneau Beach and he spoke so much and was actually interviewed by numerous news stations on Remembrance Day uh, because he was one of the tank drivers and he actually remembers the tank in front of him going under and he said it was one of those situations where he didn't know if he was going to live or not and that it it chill brings me to chills every time I think about it and just all the love and the lives that these men put aside to fight for our freedom as a country and for the freedom of the Jews and just for freedom in general and it's it's a truly beautiful thing but also so sad to think about at the same time um, but thank you for continuing to do what you do best and I just really appreciate you guys and uh, if I don't call in again. Merry Christmas and happy holidays, whatever you celebrate. And thank you for doing all you do. And go take a shit in your hat. Bye. <laughs> um, so Matthew, uh, relevant to the call about Remembrance Day, you learned some new information about yeah, your family so, thanks to this episode. Uh, thanks. Yeah. So at first I was embarrassed because I shared some information that was wrong. But that's okay. But what was amazing is, you know how you have, there's family lore? Yeah. And it's passed down and sure? it's just wrong. Yep. And it turns out, so a listener yeah. to the episode heard it. Mm-hmm. Went up into our attic, yep. found a newspaper article about my grandfather being released from the prisoner of war camp. Sure. Sent it to my mom. Yeah. Who sent it to me. Wow. So it turns out, like, my father had got it wrong. He told us he, he was captured, my grandfather was captured at Dieppe, and that's what we learned. Yeah. He actually made it through and was caught a little bit later. So he was one of the people who was able to get back to the ship. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and so this show, like I actually got a little bit misty eyed yeah. when I got that because it just, it, I like figuring out the truth. Right. And, yep. and this show has given me the ability to, to find out something about it, my grandfather that uh, I didn't know. Right. Yeah, it was amazing. the 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 title of the article was "Donald Stockton Freed by the Yanks from Hun Camp." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so old school, right? Yeah, yeah. So, thank you for that. That was fantastic. It really blew me away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yes, I I too believe that remembering Remembrance Day is super important, and I'm going to continue to do it as long as I am able. Thanks for calling, Teresa. Thank you so much. Alberta. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARKPTN. We'd love to hear from you. 
even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. It is time for a Patreon. Patreon. Patreon shoutouts. Patreon. And uh, we have, first up, from Victoria, British Columbia. Victoria, British Columbia. Tina Ann. Tina Ann from Victoria, British Columbia. And she came, comes in at the Blue Noser tier, 10 bucks. Wow. Thank you, Tina Ann. Thank you, you Blue Noser. <laughs> exactly. Um, what does Tina Ann do there in Victoria, British Columbia, where actually the majority of this, near, near where the majority of this episode took place? Yeah, she has kind of an old school job. Okay. Um, she's a sin eater. A sin eater. Yes. Okay, so she eats sin for a living? So sin eaters... Um, I know Harry Potter, but... Would eat a meal off of the chest of a dead person to release their sins. Good Lord. They really did. Yeah. So, yeah. It's kind I of don't a... know why I immediately went to naked ladies with sushi on them, but... <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, so old school job, and judging from... Today's episode, some people in Victoria need their Cindy. Next we have from Kamloops, British Columbia. Kamloops. The Loop. Bonnie Hall. Hello, Bonnie Hall. Bonnie Hall. Thank you, Bonnie Hall. And what does Bonnie do there in Kamloops? She comes in at the Eager Beaver tier for five bucks. Um, what does Bonnie do there in Kamloops, Matthew? Well, she travels a lot. Okay. To museums, and she is a mummy unroller. <laughs> she unrolls mummies. Yeah, so they can be inspected. Wow. Yep, mummy unroller. Well, you know, somebody's got to do it. Exactly. Yeah. I, you know, honestly, and maybe, did, did maybe it, I'm wrong. Maybe somebody doesn't have to do it. I think they should just leave the mummies alone, really. Do you think like toilet paper that goes up or under? Mummies? Yeah. The, so do they roll the it? cloth? <laughs> Good Lord. We'll start that debate. Yeah, are mummies like rolled like toilet paper? And also, does toilet paper go over or under? Over. Said, over, absolutely over. Under is so unsanitary, and there can be spiders. And if you disagree, you're wrong. You're incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bonnie. And last up... Wow, we have a new prime minister of dark poutine. <laughs> and this person, Andrea Hendrickson, yeah. is from Inglis, Manitoba. Thank you, Andrea Hendrickson. Wow. Inglis, Manitoba. Hendrickson. 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 That's right. Like Hendrick's gin. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe she's, no, she can't be related to Lance Hendrickson because he doesn't have a D. Oh. But, but anyway... Uh, what does Andrea do there in Inglis, Manitoba, Inglis? Master distiller. She's a master distiller. Of gin. Of gin. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did, Fun, didn't you know that town is famous for its gin? Funny how a couple of drunks could have, like, <laughs> booze on their brains. <laughs> yeah, well, so she's a gin maker. Well, there you go. She steeps, she steeps the botanicals for 48 hours. <laughs> you must be reading this from the internet currently. No, I used to. I know I'm 
actually know all the ins and outs of gin making. It's a long story. Yeah. Well, oh yeah. From your advertising. All my days. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, thank you so much, Andrea. We really, really, really appreciate it. We really do. And keep making that gin. Yeah. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash dark poutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. That's it for this week. Uh, We will be back next week. And next week's show is going to be something a little on the more creepy side of things. Yeah, well, maybe not that. But yeah, your singing is creepy. So (laughs) anyway, I'm reading Matthew for his terrible (laughs) tone deafness. Nobody's tone deaf. Okay. Anyway. That's it. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Like Mike. Bye. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.